episode 42 of Slaytanic Vercast. I'm Mo from France, and to my west, broadcasting live from Banks's secret hideout somewhere near Bristol, is Dr. Liquescence. How are you doing, Doc? Um, I'm fine. Um, I'm in the Thecla, uh, moored in the Grove in Bristol Harbour, uh, mm-hmm. where it has been for the last 40 years at least. Oh, yes. Uh, so, not so secret anymore. Oops, mm-hmm. shouldn't I have said that? Oh, Doc, what have you done? What have you done? He's kept that a secret for the best part of 20 years, and you've just blown it all. Yeah, I mean, uh, was what, did anyone really ever seriously doubt that uh, Banksy was, in fact, such and such advertising agency? <laughs> so, you're, you're a bit of a conspiracy theorist on this, are you, Doc? You, you, you don't think it's one person, or what's going on in your mind, in your deranged mind? I'm just trying to work out um, who would have the resources to do some very large-scale stencil work mm. um, in apparently very public places mm-hmm. with at least the complicity in ignorance um, of the police or the civic authorities. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's got to be someone with a bobble too to throw around. You think so, wouldn't um, you? And uh, it's it's an advertising agency of some description, mm. obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, not not that I know anything, um, but <laughs> the one that has the closest connections to the established world of fine art and art dealing would be Sachi and Sachi. So uh, I mean, the, the, there's 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 a couple of other candidates. There's there's Mothers um, and there's possibly Havas Helia as well. Um, Havas Helia being very conveniently located on the Tottenham Court Road, just around the corner from the British Museum. Oh blimey! There we go. I think like another. Um, mysterious figure from history whose identity has never truly been revealed, even though clearly the authorities know precisely who it is. I think Banksy might just be the Queen's physician. What do you reckon about that, Doc? That's my theory. Um, I was, as soon as you started your exposition, I was about to say, um, could it be that Jack the Ripper has travelled through time um, and become an artist in the 21st century? Well, if Babylon Five has taught us anything, we we know that, that Jack the Ripper lives has lived a very very long life. Yeah, precisely. The ship's ready to go. I've taken care of all the clearances. Thank you, Mister Sebastian. I did a little digging, based on what you told me. The records confirm he lived on Earth, in London, in the year 1888. The records also indicate that you vanished suddenly, without a trace, on November 11th, 1888. It's a very interesting date, Mr. Sebastian. The morning after the last of a string of murders on the East End. The city was drowning in decay. Chaos, immorality, a message needed to be sent, etched in blood for all the world to see, a warning. In the pursuit of my holy cause, I did things, terrible things, unspeakable things. The world condemned me. But it didn't matter, because I believed I was right and the world was wrong. 
I believed I was the divine messenger. I believed I was... Chosen. Good luck to you in your holy cause, Captain Sheridan. May your choices have better results than mine. Remembered not as a messenger. Remembered not as a reformer. Not as a prophet. Not as a hero. Not even as Sebastian. Remembered only as Jack. So um, I, I was curious um, as to whether you were going to say it was the aliens, mate. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you, you know that's my go-to answer for most things. It's the aliens. You know, who invented pizza? It's the aliens. It's obvious. It's always the aliens, Doc. Um, the the only problem is it, it's 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 not the 1990s anymore. Um, and going, um, it's the aliens. It must be the aliens. Isn't really a very good answer for um, for anything nowadays. No, Chris Chris Carter, would, I, I think, would like w- 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 wishes that that the opposite were true. But I fear you may be absolutely correct, Doc. I wish the opposite were true. Yeah, of course, of course. Unfortunately, um, you know, if I told people what the evidence was, then the aliens would be furious with me. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it, it's a sad state of affairs. Doc, I've got some good news, which I'm quite excited about. Um, oh, go on. I've got a job interview tomorrow. Fantastic. How about that? I've, I've, been, I've been, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been looking for work on and off now for a couple of months, but over the last two or three weeks, I've actually kind of, you know, actually got my head down and, and, and really, really made a concerted effort. And lo and behold, tomorrow I've got a job interview. Um, it's a delivery driver. I, I want to be a driver, Doc. I think I've talked about it on the, on the, on the podcast before. I want to be Absolutely. a driver. Um, and I've got an interview tomorrow with Britain's favourite supermarket. Um, it rhymes with UNESCO. Um, Let's uh-huh. leave it at that. Uh, les autres supermarchés sont disponibles, mes amis. So don't worry about that. Um, it's all going to be okay. Um, so, yeah, fingers crossed for, for tomorrow, Doc. I, I know you'll be wishing me well. Of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. sure you will. Um, that's, that's great. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, ciao time, motherfuckers, I reckon. Um, just a couple today. In the last episode... I referenced the high-end intro to a Maiden track as evidence of a piece of music that sounds harder to play than it is in reality. I said it was the intro to Sea of Madness. I was, I was wrong, war I. It was, of course, Wasted Years. Now, I put the right snippet into the podcast, but I just gave it the wrong title when I was talking about it. But I've, I've corrected it post-facto. What more can I do, Doc? What more can I do? Um, you've apologised. Um, you've you've owned your mistake. I have. Um, you've taken corrective action, and mm-hmm. nothing more can be expected. No. Um, as as for that discussion, I was thinking about things that. Um, there's a particular guitar part that you mentioned, and you said like superficially it's easy to play, mm. and playing it through once is actually very easy. Oh, that was the um, that, that was the opening riff to the, to the track itself, wasn't it? Behind the crooked it cross, was, yeah, yeah. Um, I um, felt the need. Um, I don't have a functional bass at the moment, but I felt the need to get out the next best thing to a functional bass that I have. 
um, because I had a suspicion that I had tried and failed to play the baseline to Suicide by Spaceman 3. Oh, yes. Um, and I'd encountered the exact same problem, which even though it's only got two notes in it, mm. the first two and a half minutes you're playing it is all right. <laughs> and then after minute five, it becomes really, really hard to keep time. Yeah, I mean, I mean knowing Spaceman 3, I thought you were going to say, the first two and a half minutes of playing that riff are okay, but the next 17 are a real bummer. I began to think to myself, oh, what, what, what is it about Willie Carruthers or the, the, the other members of Spaceman 3 um, that enable them to just sort of sustain these, these, these hypnotic grooves for such prolonged periods of time? Um, and then because I'm slow on the uptake, mate, um, it took me the better part of the rest of the evening to figure it out. And I thought to myself, maybe it's the drugs. Yeah, well, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> copious amounts of cannabis, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. And um, anything else they can get. Yeah. Down their neck, up their nose, or up their arm, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely correct. Um, uh, second correction here. Um, in the last episode, and this is on you, Doc. In the last episode, the Doc keeps on referring to Silent Scream as the Silent Scream. Now, come on, guys, cut him some slack. He might sound like a granddad talking about the Twitter or the Facebook or something. <laughs> but I'm going to give him a break because the track is inspired by a documentary which is, in fact, called The Silent Scream. So I think that's fair enough, Doc. I'll, I'll let you off, mate. Don't worry. Um, no, that's all on me as well. Um, somehow, I it's not even the first time I've done it. Mm. Anything involving metal, um, I have a tendency to um, attach um, definite articles. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. to, um, now... I know it's not the same part of speech we're talking about, but you're very, very far from the only person um, who consistently conflates rain in blood with oh, yeah. raining blood. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've made that error countless times and doubtless I will do it again. Um, but and, and you're far from the only person to do it. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, somehow anything involving metal, um, possibly in an attempt to increase its import or grandiosity. Yeah, I cannot help yeah. but I, I, I cannot help but attach definite articles to it. <laughs> it's or it, it, it's a, it's one of your quirks, Doc. And it's, to be honest with you, it's one of your least devious quirks. So you know we don't mind too much. It's all right. <laughs> um, topic time. Um, give me a number, Doc, between one and four, if you would. I'm superstitious. I've never used the number four before in this process. So I'm going to say four. All right, then this is a good one. Songs that make you cry. How about that? If you, if you, can, if you can give me three, I'd be, I'd be deeply grateful. And I've already got three prepared. Um, I don't, as is the nature with extreme emotional reactions, um, I would have to get a little more personal than anyone really wants me to, to explain why yeah. some songs make me cry. Yeah. Um, I, I, you don't have to go into details, my love. You know, if you, 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 I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to explain my rationale for it. The the ones that most reliably have um, an extreme emotional reaction um, and 
I don't necessarily mean a sad one. I, I, I just, you're asking about just a literal lacrimal reaction, aren't you? Correct. Uh, Active no Kokoro by Sakai Noriko. Oof. Um, That's going to be can, a tough one for me to find on YouTube, Doc. I have no explanation. I, I have no explanation for it. Mm. Um, I just think it, it's 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 monstrous big-heartedness from beginning to end. Mm. Um, doesn't have any particular significance to me or my life. Mm-hmm. This is a bit of an obvious one, but it still does it for me every time. Um, the rhyme of the ancient mariner by Iron Maiden. <laughs> Well, it, it, it's it's kind of obvious, isn't it? You know, it, it, it's a it's a massive epic narrative that draws you in, um, and um, if you sub, if you succumb to it playing with your emotions, then it really can play with your emotions. Um, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, that's that's a really and, good one. Let, let, let me give you a couple first, and we'll save both of our last ones to the end. Um, my first one is a track called Voyage Voyage. Um, which is an eight, a French 80s pop classic by a band called Desirless. <laughs> It's pretty famous. I, th- I think it did. Uh, I think it did cross La Manche. Um, so I think you know many people in Britain will will be familiar with the song. I don't know what it is. It's you know for me, Doc. I never cry at songs when I listen to them, but you know, being a bit of a karaoke king, from time to time, I will you know try and belt out a, a track here and there, and 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 there are just some songs that when I try to sing them. They just get me, and, and, and I can't get through them without welling up and, and my voice cracking. And that's one of them. It's most, most curious because, as, you know, as you said for your first one, there's nothing particularly resonant about it with regards to my own life. Um, but regardless, I cannot reach the end of that particular pop classic without ending up in floods. Um, my second one may be a bit more obvious, and, and, and but maybe the reason is is clear. It's uh, Zombie by the Cranberries.
know, I, I just find the emotion in that song, the lyrics, I just find it really, really pertinent, really affecting, as well as effective. Um, and yeah, again, I can't reach the end of that doc. But, you know, when, I, when I'm trying to impress the ladies down at the local gin joint, um, no, I can't get to the end of it. I, I end up like a like a blubbering buffoon. Um, what's your last one, Doc? Um, I'm actually struggling now. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can think of a very great many songs that have an emotional resonance, either happy or sad. Um, you can pass, Doc, if you want to. You know, and I think the listeners know about Um I'm I'm an emotional creature by nature. Um, and you, you can you can come to whatever conclusions you like about this, but um, the the emotions that are elicited from me by certain particularly emotional works are kind of the opposite ones, I suspect, to most people, and maybe the opposite ones that were uh, uh, that were intended as well. I find Joy Division uniquely euphoric. Sure. Um, and um, I'm going to ask you for your final one because I, I I just need a couple more minutes to think about this. No problem at all. My my third one um, would be um, "Hello Goodbye" by the Beatles. You say yes, I say no. You say stop, and I say go. No particular reason for this. I mean, my dad was a, a big Beatles fan, and you know, I lost my dad, but I don't think that's the reason because other Beatles tracks don't do it. Um, I used this track when I was teaching young French pupils, you know, so you know, these these are children aged between I'd say nine and twelve. Um, mm -hmm. you know, but, and the reason I, I selected that track in particular was because the lyrics are. You know, pretty pretty simply, it's a lovely song, a lovely song, a lovely tune, and the lyrics are, you know, reasonably simplistic, simplistic enough that, you know, a, a, a reasonably competent twelve-year-old French kid who's learning English will be able to to comprehend the English, you know. Um, so so it's, it's an effective teaching tool, um, and you know, often we, I'd, I'd, you know, me, me and the me and the pupil, because I, I generally work one to one with the kids, um, me and the pupil would would sing it together and by god if if by the end i wasn't having to hide the fact that i was about to burst into floods of tears um utterly utterly unexplainable um but real nevertheless stuff there we go hello goodbye by the beatles get to mow every single time there you go Ooh. i'm gonna have to wind up here and i'm gonna have to say can i come back to you possibly even on the next episode or maybe even the end of this one because I know at least one, maybe two things will present themselves within the next one or two hours. Um, I, I can't get at them at the moment. Um, I keep going through um, my, 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 my database of songs that I've listened to. Mm -hmm. That makes me happy. That makes me sad. Mm -hmm. That makes me depressed. That makes me out. But as for ones that actually have the, 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 the lacrimal reaction, 
Yeah. Um, yeah. That's proving harder than I thought it might do. That's all right. Um, so I'll get back to you. Don't worry about it. That's absolutely fine. Okay, guys, we're going to get on with the show. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter at Vercast or on email at slatanicvercast at gmail.com or for the perverts, Facebook at slatanicvercast as well. Um, and that's it. Let's get on with let's get on with the show. Okay, welcome to part two of the show. As you know by now, we're going to play the track. We're going to pause it from time to time and we're going to talk about it with each other for your listening pleasure here we go <laughs> the track today of course is track five from south of heaven which is mandatory suicide let's go <laughs> Morbid Mutzduck. Well, <clears throat> I'm almost risking saying something that people probably knew I was going to say by now. Uh, this this is the kind of Slayer I like the best. Yeah, well, um, you, you know, in the back of my mind, um, I almost said it actually, but, but, but I refrained. I had a sneaking suspicion. Now, listeners, you know, trust me, we never talk about this before. We, you know, we keep our opinions to ourselves. So the first time that I learned the doc's opinion is hot off the press, just like you guys. I had a sneaking suspicion, Doc, you were going to dig the fuck out of this song. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who can't remember a few weeks ago, um, I like my, I, I love all my Slayer, but I love my Slayer um, the best when it's this pace, um, which... Would this count as mid-paced or slow? I mean, it, yeah, it, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's mid-paced going on slow, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> is, that, is that threshold somewhere? Yeah. Um, it does this thing that Slayer um, oft copied, rarely bettered. Um, just an ear for a really simple and indescribably morbid melody, mm. Um, mm. and then not just doing it once, but finding a harmonic melody to go with it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then um, like just big open power chords, you know, just to just to seemingly slow it, even though the pace remains the same, it just it just seems to become even more kind of um what, what can I say? Um monolithic, if you like. Yeah, um if you're struggling for an adjective an adjective um for much longer, um I was gonna say hypnotic, because I mean even though it's as far from Spaceman 3 as you can kind of get uh, without being Dutch house. Um, it, it does have that, that, that hypnotic quality to it. Um, I could easily make a loop of that riff and listen to it for an hour. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just, and just, just it, non-stop, just that. Do, 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 yeah, do, 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 do. yeah um, mm -hmm. and, it, it, and the more I listen to it, the better it will carry on getting <clears throat> um, until... I know when it stopped, I would have a real sense of loss and I, I, I would really feel the need to go back and listen to it again because sure. <clears throat> now yeah. something was missing from my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it is that it's this particular style of Slayer that floats your boat so much? 
so the obvious answer is it, it's the it's where Slayer get close to pretty much all the other music that I electively listen to. It's mm-hmm. about the right speed. Um, this is about as little distortion as I like on my guitars. Yeah, <clears throat> I normally like them noisier. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> it's I suppose what's so effective for me is there's nothing complicated about it. Um, it's simple, and the skill is in the imagine. The, 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 the skill is in the brain, not the fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the ability to dream up that riff um, and compose it and play it, and then out of all of the keys, out of all of the places on the guitar neck, you can start to play it from intuitively. Being able to pick the correct one that has the maximum emotional impact. Sure. So. I suppose if we could get deep into brain science and stuff like this, there must be something, it, it, it must cover a range of frequencies that are also covered by other things I like the sound of, including jet engines, um, diesel engines, hair dryers, <laughs> all the everyday objects that I like the sound So, I mean, for instance, motorcycle engines or F1 engines, I don't like the sound of. It'll probably turn out that um, it's rooted in a range of frequencies that are similar to the frequencies that, or the resonances that also occur in other noises that I like, and that probably goes deep into childhood. How are you with white noise, Doc? Because I, I know some that there are some people who kind of use white noise as a sleep aid, you know, so that they find it difficult to sleep without just the sound of like static on a TV or radio. And this is a really interesting thing. Um, I know many people who, uh, particularly people who suffer from tinnitus or Mm. particularly people who suffer from some mild and well-understood mental disorders, um, take great comfort in white noise. Yeah. Here is a really interesting thing. I would always say to you that I didn't like the sound of white noise, um, but I like the sound of the ocean. Sure. Oh, yes. Um, And um, I I took part in a, a trained psychologist's amateur experiment once. Um, and actually, it turns out I can't tell the difference between white noise and the sound of the ocean. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that, you know, you know, if you've, you kind of played them you, you, with, with, with no context, I can easily imagine that, that, that they'd be almost indistinguishable. Yeah. So if, if you run two tapes yeah. and someone and you can't see what they're doing and someone pushes the one fader up and pushes the other fader down yeah. and says, which one is higher in the mix at the moment? Which one sure. is? And I say, oh, clearly the ocean. Yeah. But no, actually, that's pure white noise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. Isn't it interesting? I, I mean, white, white noise doesn't do it for me, certainly not as a sleep aid. But, but I, I do require a little bit of, of, of noise in order to get to sleep. I, I find it very difficult to sleep in a totally silent room. Here's a question for you. You grew up, same as me, um, in an industrial town. Mm. And then you went on to live in a very, very rural place later on. Yeah. How well at all did, did you adapt to the ambient sound or lack there? Because, I mean, you know, you lived in um, Dudley-ish, mm. then Sheffield-ish, then mm. Wolverhampton-ish, yeah. and then you're suddenly um, in the back of France. Correct. It's a good question, Doc, uh, and, and, you know, and maybe that is a kind of explanation that, you know, generally in the places where I, you know, where I lived as a, as, as a boy or as a young man, you, you kind of never really experienced true silence. Um, yeah. You know, where, whereas living in rural France, 
you know, I mean, pretty much once it gets to 10 o'clock, you, you, you know, you can hear a pin drop in the, in, in the village square that, 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 that's, that's a kilometre, you know, that's a kilometre away. Um, so, yeah, maybe that is a partial explanation. Very, very yeah, good observation, Doc. I've never quite yeah. made that association, actually. Well, I mean, I, I remember, and I, I don't know when it shut down, but I mean, the, the, that house where you lived when you were small, um, that had a foundry right at the back of it on the other side of the canal that used to work shifts in those. And I mean, that, that, that would have been pretty noisy. All of, um, my grandma um, lived in Cradley mm. all her whole, in, uh, Cradley Heath, get it right, mm. her whole entire life. Um, and you could clearly hear the drop forge at Round Oak Steelworks. Oh, yeah. And when, they, when, when Round Oak shut down, um, people, in, like all the people in that neighbourhood at least, and probably over a big chunk of the black country, had a massive problem getting to sleep mm. for a long time. Uh, mm. Because, I mean, and, I mean it's, it's a bit romantic to talk about heavy industry being the heartbeat of the community. But, I mean, literally that bong, yeah. bong, that you could hear everywhere mm. like in a five mile radius all the way around briley hill mm. yeah, um, it's really interesting I mean, another thing I, I cannot you know i cannot abide you know like like a, like a, a hot bedroom um even in winter you know my preference is for the window to be open um you know of course like underneath a warm quilt but my preference yeah. is for the room to be frosty you know, the colder the better. And again, that just that just comes from from the formative years, doesn't it? You know, you know the council house that I grew up in. Um, you know, in, in in the deepest, darkest depths of winter, you get you get a, like a centimeter of ice on the inside of the window, um, and you just well, get used the, to it. Those, those council houses. Um, did your your council house had electricity upstairs, right? It did. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I. I I know some, um, including my grandmother's, um, until they had the rebuild in the early 80s, mm. she didn't have electricity upstairs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, there was electricity, but there was no central heating upstairs. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, I, was just, I was just thinking about the fact that, like, if it became life-threatening, you, you could have used an electric heater. Did you have, did you have a little coal fireplace in your upstairs? In, I think... Uh, um, I think initially yes, but then like the council came in and did some re like, renovation work, and and, right. and sealed sealed that up. And and, and yeah, I, I can't really remember, but yeah, it it went away basically. But, but I do have a memory of it. So I think probably what happened was when they did the the renovation, which probably took a good fifteen years to complete all over the borough. Uh -huh. um, I think they probably sealed up the little coal fireplaces and they put gas and electric in upstairs. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably right, Doc. I think you're probably right. Should we get back to Slayer, Doc? Enough reminiscing about the, the good old days in the black country. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, in any case, um, you um, suggested, inferred, guessed that this might be an easy sell to me. Guess yeah. what? You were right. Yeah, I thought so, Doc. Let, let's press on. <laughs> What a riff. What a riff that is. What timing is that? I'm, I'm going to count it out. Sorry, listeners, let me just count this out. 
I get to three before dun, dun, it repeats. Dun, dun. I think it's seven four. I do. I'm, I'm not very good on timings. I'd, I'd say three four, but but I'm, I'm pulling it out of my arse, Doc. I'll be honest with you. Uh, so um, this is my. I'm saying this in the hope of provoking someone who's good at music mm. um, to write in and collect and, and, and correct us and give and, cool. and, and give us a hand here. Yeah. Um, yeah. My naive assumption is that three four is waltz. Boom tish tish boom tish tish boom tish tish. Five four is march plus waltz. So boom tish boom tish tish boom tish boom tish tish. And then seven four, which I think this is, mm-hmm. um, is Ringo plus waltz. So boom tish 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 boom tish tish boom tish 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 boom tish tish. And that sounds about right, actually. Yeah, yeah, that, that does sound about right, doesn't it? I, I think you could overlay that riff over the, the beat that you just that you just kind of enacted for us. Yeah. So um, I'm going to guess at seven four. Good. Uh, yeah. And uh, that's that's a complicated. That's that's a difficult time signature to thrash. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. It yeah, is, but that's what, all. no, it, 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 it's a good point, Doc. Yeah, it, because it, I mean, it clearly is an unusual time signature, and one that Slayer, I don't know if they've, I don't think they've deployed it before. I think they do, I think they will use it again. Um, I'm throwing forward to Killing Fields on Divine Intervention. I'm pretty certain that's got a similar, a similar uh, time signature. Also, of note, I think it's just how fucking heavy that riff is. I think this is just about as heavy as Slayer gets. Um, and there's there's a really interest there's, there's a tiny but very important factor that makes it heavy. Before it goes into seven four, there's a riff they play there, and um, if it wasn't for the stop, mm-hmm. um, if it wasn't for the palm mute, um, that could easily be a riff from some noise drone indie pop band from the eighties. Any, I'm going to ask any, you either. Any examples, Doc? Just you know, just spring to mind, so I can drop drop a, an example in if if I can find it on um, YouTube. Loop is the band that immediately springs to mind. Mm-hmm. They would have done something like that. That riff with everything hanging, um, and it's it's precisely the muting um, that that makes it heavy. Yeah, it is. Oh, certainly, it's the palm muting, no doubt about it. It's it's the it's kind of the you know the the, the slow pace, the palm muting, and that weird time signature. I think all come together to make it sound pretty pretty crushingly heavy um, as far as Slayer goes. I mean, of course, there are much you know there, there are much heavier bands out there, um, as we've discussed previously. But as far as Slayer goes, pretty damn heavy. Sure. Here we go.
Tom's doing his singing thang again, isn't he here? Now, unlike the last track, where he was, you know, singing, you know, in air quotes, um, and it really, really irritated me. Here, I think it works perfectly. What's the difference, Doc? It's another difference that's, I mean, you need a micrometer to measure it. The distance mm. is so tiny. Um, the difference between his ill-advised Elvis impersonation on the previous track, uh-huh. Tom Araya vocals, but making them a bit more melodic. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's it's a matter of, it, it's it's just a matter of degrees. It's just a matter of excess. Mm. Um, and you know, as when you're mixing a track, as as when you're doing anything that requires subtlety. Um, and I know many people who aren't into Slayer be sniggering at the idea of me using the word subtlety and Slayer in the same mm. set. There's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of minute decisions when you're making music like this. Mm-hmm. Um, the palm mute might not be, I'll get back to the vocals in a second. Yeah. The palm mute might not be an immediately obvious one, but it's the change in, and I'm pretty confident I'm using this expression correctly now. It's the change in the cadence. Oh, lovely. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. So yeah. <clears throat> um, I bet you I could find you a loop track or like something from Sub Pop um, that has the same rhythm and the same tempo and probably even the same chords, but because it's got no palm mute, um, what, um, it's how you want to dance to it, mate. How you want to dance is to swing your head from side to side. Mm-hmm. What palm yeah. mute does? For the listeners what? at home, I'm watching the doc on Zoom, and, and he's giving me a perfect example of swinging your head from side to side. It's absolutely beautiful to watch. Well, it's, it's a difficult concept if you, if, if, if you don't have a visual aid, <laughs> swinging your head from side to side. Right, it is. Um, and what the palm mute does, is backhands you slightly in the cheek and you swing mm. your head from side to side and it goes dang, dang, and that's what makes your head bang. Mm, mm. That's the that's the head bang moment. Yeah. That's the moment of heaviness. Um, and it's very subtle. And with Tom's vocals on this, once again, it's like he's got a rotary control um, with, um, I guess, um, thrash barking. Um, so... Um, Rob Halford on mood stabilizing drugs. <laughs> yes. Um, and um, who's a. All right, Glenn Danzig. Rob Halford on, 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 on um, mood stabilizing drugs, on the other hand, and Glenn Danzig on the other. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Talking, um, of, uh, talking of the Elvis of metal. <laughs> <laughs> well, precisely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And it, it's 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 a matter of degrees. And on this track, um, Tom is, is is sort of well within the comfort zone. He's, mm-hmm. he's, uh, he 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 hasn't um, he's not yet going as far as well. You know, if you want to find hell with me, I can show you what it's like. Mother, 
Oh, very good. You're great. Brilliant. Danzig reference there, listeners. <laughs> I, I think also, you know, I was already irritated by by the track because of the like the bouncy, bouncy, bumptish, bumptish nature of the of the verse riff. And so I, and I, so I think that was compounded by, you know, kind of the softly, softly approach of Tom's vocals. Whereas here, I think the you know, I think the verse riff is, is dark and morbid and evil and and so and so i don't object to you know to him kind of toning down the rage as it were sure um i stick by what i said last week i think um behind the crooked cross musically and vocally i think it was a very misguided attempt at um at, at doing authentic american rock and roll mm. um i don't think it was a good idea in the first place mm. um and I don't think it was a particularly good example of it. We got warned, I got warned, didn't I, that I'd be coming into this album um, expecting to come across a few experiments that weren't completely successful. You're right, yeah. And I think we've still got two, maybe three to go. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to your impressions when, when we get there. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, behind the crooked cross. I mean, obviously, we spoke about it at great length last episode. I mean, it, it just, just sucked. And I, I think I will never listen to that song again. I, I think by analysing it for this for this podcast, it's actually more deeply entrenched my dislike of that track than the, you know the, 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 than it was prior to, to our analysis. If that makes any sense. Yes. And the strangest thing is that um, I ended up disliking it less than you did. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. So um, listeners. Never underestimate the rage of a truly disappointed, lifelong, hardcore Slayer fan. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it really, really got under my skin. Anyway, we're listening to a great song tonight, so let's 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 press on. Bit of bass there, Doc. Did you, did, you, did you catch it? Yes, I did. I heard a bit oh, of bass growling there. Lovely bit of bassy twang. Really enjoyed it. I always wish they'd do that more often. Mm. Um, on the other hand, maybe I don't because it's um, it's such a nice presence when it does make its presence felt. Mm. Uh, you think, oh, I wow, know bass. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 just a, a real nice surprise when, when, when Tom's bass cuts through the mix. Um, here's an interesting thing. Uh, an interesting side question to go with this. And I know we've waffled a lot this evening and we've still got a lot of track to get through, but um, this might sound like a really unusual question. Like me, you grew up in a household where nobody played any instruments and there weren't any musical instruments lying around. Correct. When did you first become aware of the existence of the instrument called the electric bass? I, I, I honestly can't recall, Doc. I, I, I just can't answer that question. I don't know. Um, because I'm aware of the fact that I, I only became aware of the instrument that, obviously, having taken it up and learned to play it myself, um, I now know to be the electric bass. But mm. until I was probably about age 12 or 13, I just assumed that everyone had, like, when you saw bands on top of the pops, I just assumed that everyone had a guitar. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a long time before I realised that there was a completely different instrument that was an octave lower and in an amplified band took the 
place of the 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 big violin thing that classical orchestras and jazz bands had. Yeah, you're talking about the double bass there, aren't you, Doc? The big violin thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah the big the, the, violin. Yeah, the great big violin thing. <laughs> Actually, I mean, now you've said that, I think it was probably, you know, when I first started becoming interested in playing in a band. I think that's probably the first time I kind of had a conscious awareness that there was a requirement for an instrument other than guitar and drums. Yeah, because, I mean, it, um, probably the instrument that you've ever seen anyone play most close up would have been a piano. You'd have, what, you'd have seen a teacher playing a piano at school and you'd have mm. maybe gone to, gone to some recitals and maybe seen someone playing one down the pub. Yeah. Um, and you, you just have this natural assumption that, like, well, because obviously a piano can do everything, um, a piano can go, like, all the way from the bottom right to the top and probably has a bigger range than any other instrument. Sure. Um, and there's certainly no concept of having a, a piano that can play an octave lower than another piano. Mm-hmm. Although, obviously, for anyone listening who's ever studied organ, well, yes, there is um, mm-hmm. there is precisely one of those. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, it's the thing you tread on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other, like, when, when did I begin to realise that the electric bass as an instrument um, even existed? And I don't know when it was. Obviously, Joy Division being the band that's been with me for the longest <clears throat> um, and might be the band in the world that's the white rock and roll band in the world that's most associated with pushing the bass up front. I mean, mm. with. We're not talking about Sly Stone or we're not talking about Funkadelic or something here who had superstar bass players. Um, but, I mean, particularly, definitely amongst punk rock, um, that was the band that I, I think made the electric bass the, the, the central instrument and everything else supported that. Yeah, I'm revising my, my, my thought process here. It could be... Um, my awareness of the, of the electric bass may have been triggered by John Deakin and Queen. Um, you know, I mean, specifically, I'm thinking Under Pressure. One of the most famous bass lines in rock music, I would argue, um, and even to my kind of young, untrained ears, I think it was pre- probably pretty apparent that that was not being played on a, on a regular electric guitar. Yeah. Um, now, um, wasn't wasn't Mr. Deacon also considered to be the main composer in Queen? Oh no! Well, I, I think I think that no, I think those duties are pretty equally split, you know, between right. Freddie, Brian, and 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 Deacon. You know, it 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 is hard to say because I think from I could be wrong about the album, 
But I think from the game onwards, they shared um, writing credit. So it was just written by Queen. They didn't um, separate the writing credit. In fact, that was one of the big reasons they, they almost split up. They got back together to do Live Aid, then stayed together. And one of the right. one of the prerequisites for them staying together was shared writing credits, basically. The band wrote the track, not individuals. That's interesting. I, I, I had got this idea from somewhere. Mm. Um, I didn't just dream it up that um, obviously Brian May was the genius guitarist who wrote the who who wrote the melodies um, and obviously the solos. Yeah. Um, Freddie wrote the words and obviously the piano parts. Mm -hmm. But from somewhere I'd got the idea that um, that Mr. Deacon was if in the terms of in orchestral terms. Mr. Deacon was the, the, the composer. He sort of wrote the song structure. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I can give you a couple of examples. Um, I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide. No escape from reality. Open your eyes. I think comes from A Night at the Opera. I think that's the album that's off. And that hmm. is solely credited to Freddie, um, which is very surprising. You know, I always find this a bit baffling. Are you telling me that Freddie Mercury wrote that fucking guitar solo? I don't think so. So I don't understand how that works. But then on the same album, there's an equivalent song, which is called, I think it's called A Prophet Song or The Prophet Song. And, it, and, and, and that's solely credited to Brian May. It's another kind of operatic epic. That right. one's solely credited to, to Brian May. Um, so, I mean, it, it, I always find this a little bit mysterious, writing credits. It is strange, isn't it? I mean, are, are, are we supposed to assume that um, when they first, when, when they had their first practice for, the, for, uh, for their album, Freddie Mercury strolls over to the drum set and says, like, move aside, I'm going to show you, uh, I'm going to show you the drum pack. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, that, exactly. You know, that's a great. Watch point. what I'm doing. Memorize this. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, isn't it? You know, uh, you know, the track we're listening to tonight is credited to the the is credited to um, Jeff, Kerry, and Tom, but D Dave is not credited at all. But, but, but he obviously wrote the drum beat. So how how does he not get a credit? I don't understand. I don't either. Um, I mean the. I know a lot of it just comes down to money, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Unfortunately, that's the truth. Um, so it's like how famously um, in the Beatles there were there were nine wages. Mm -hmm. um, there were the, the, there were the, um, the Beatles famously all got paid the same. It was a complete democracy. All the wages were the same, but there were nine wages, and John and Paul got three wages each 
for being a musician, a singer, and a songwriter. Oh, yes. George got two wages for being a musician and a singer, and Ringo got one. Ah, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, it, 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 it's very strange, and it must cause a huge amount of strife. Well, in fact, you know, Slayer themselves have had great problems keeping Dave in the band because at regular intervals, he would get sick and tired of not getting paid as much as the other guys. And frankly, Doc, I can't fucking blame him. Well, no, and I mean, you've... Um, you've asserted many times that um, there were quite a few tracks on the previous album. And it was only him that kept them, that, that kept the track afloat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, and on this album, I, th- I think he really is at the top of his game. You know, I think he's the star performer so far on this album. Um, Should sh- sh- we crack on, Doc? We, we are waffling a bit, but it- it's all good fun. Here we go. <laughs> I'm just going to let it play on for a bit, Doc, because no- nothing much has changed, really, has it? So let's just play it out for a little bit. Sure. there doc talk about dave on fire listen to that bill <laughs> my god come on lombardo you absolute legend um now here do you remember doc i, th- I think it, it must have been in the south of heaven episode i was complaining a little bit even though i gave the track 10 out of 10 i was complaining a little bit about the, re- the, the repeat chorus where he just says on and on south of heaven four times and i just mm-hmm. I felt that, yeah, generally i don't like that of course he's doing exactly the same here I've got no gripes. I think it works absolutely perfectly. Um, I had no problem with it in the previous track, and I, I have no problem with it here. Yeah, um, yeah. We haven't we haven't played the game for a week or two. Um, ah. I have I have no fear of public humiliation. Uh-huh. To me, that sounds like um, absolutely by the book Hanneman in the first half of the solo, and absolute by the book Kerry in the second half of the solo. And I believe that it is, this, I, th- I think the solo is one guitarist, it does not switch, and it is Hanneman all the way through. Good Lord. So your instincts were, your instincts started off good, but you heard a transition that didn't really exist, unfortunately. Um, I th- Jeff just probably got to change his position on the guitar a little bit and started wanking off the, the tremolo bar. That, that, that's what tricked you. Yeah. That's what tricked you, Doc. Here we go. Spoken word section. So this is the first time they've done that, isn't it? Yeah, and very effective it is too. Isn't it just? Yeah, isn't it just? Um, 
I am aware of the fact that I probably spent 10 years without listening to this album because mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't have a copy close at hand and I, I didn't have an easy way of getting one. Mm. Whenever bits of Slayer would swim up into my head, often very late at night or when taking a bath, um, it would be the song. Right. Mm-hmm. And it would be the... It would be the spoken word section of the oh, song. Right. Yeah, how about that? How peculiar. Yeah. Um, and it's a strange statement, isn't it, that out of this whole entire album, mm. this little section, the spoken word section, um, is the bit that embedded itself most deeply in my subconscious mm. and mm. Which, 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 which swam out to meet me later on. And do you think that's because it's just so damn creepy? It's kind of gave you the shivers? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's I think it's wonderfully effective. Um, you know, obviously we're going to get onto the subject matter of the lyrics, but it's pretty clear from from, from the title. I'd, I'd, I would argue anyway. Um, but yeah, yeah just, just that spoken word. It's almost like a, like a, almost it almost feels like reportage, doesn't it? You know, it, 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 just somebody kind of cold bloodedly describing the horrific events that they're witnessing, you know, you know it's Kate AD, you know, in Beirut, something like that. Um, we'll get on to, uh, you, you brought me to this a little earlier. I was going to put this off until we get to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, this whole section is um, a bunch of diagenic noises. And mm-hmm. I've got a question. The, the diagenic noises, are they being made by the band using their instruments during the performance of the, of the song or are they post-production tricks? Oh, I'm I'm pretty sure they're post production. Yeah, I, I, right. I, I don't believe they're doing that. Um, you know, actually, actually performing it live. In fact, when they, when you know, when they do play it live, they do make noises on the guitar. But they, you know, it, it's not it, obviously, it's not that clear. It's not, you know, it's just not, it's not that um, distinct from the rest of the, you know, like the soloing and stuff that goes on. Yeah. Um, the reason I asked the question is because um, one of the things that um, I don't even know if it's very well remembered or very well respected or people even care about it nowadays. When the first Rage Against the Machine album came out, one of the shocking things and one of the things that it was best known for was Tom Morello's ability to get diagenic sounds sure. out of his... So um, the, the, there are like police siren noises and machine gun sounds and helicopter sounds. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he does all of that with a guitar and a fairly modest effect rack. very interesting to me if Slayer had done something very like that but a good six or seven years earlier I, I don't think so I mean for, forgive me listeners if I, I've got this wrong but I've got no memory of, see, of, of seeing these guys live and you know th- that section being quite as distinct and pronounced as it is here yeah. um, no, I think it's definitely a bit of studio trickery you said Kate AD um no, it is to do with the sound of the track. It's not to do with the lyrics of the track. So uh, this 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 will stand mentioning that. Um, I think it's supposed to be Walter Cronkite. 
Um, I, I, I think know the name. He, he's, he's a really famous American war correspondent, isn't he? That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. Um, and... Go on, Doc, sorry. He's, he's just well-known for a lot like Kate Adie, actually, just being able to be the voice of sanity and explain in a more or less coherent and understandable way the unbelievable carnage and atrocity and horror that you're seeing yeah. you know, while this person is actually standing there, in some cases, being shot at. Yeah, yeah. And, and for you, Doc, you know, what, what do you think those, the, you know, those sound effects are meant to represent? Because to me, you know, it, it, it's kind of, it's tanks rumbling over kind of fallen masonry and crushing everything kind of beneath the tracks. That's what I see. I more felt more like more. I could hear the sound of falling masonry. I feel like I could hear incoming, like oh, yeah. some, some, some big artillery shells. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably um, there's a siren now. What would the siren be? Um, the siren is um, the siren that normally a um, engineer's unit will sound when they have to detonate in an exploded shell. So um, it's not an air raid siren, but if, if it's a battlefield and someone's seen a shell come down and it hasn't g- gone off, mm. then typically the if there's a battle going on, they don't have to they, they don't have any chance to evacuate the area and sandbag it. Mm-hmm. But typically, what they'll do is go in with um, an anti-materiel rifle with a phosphorus tracer, uh-huh. and they'll sound a siren uh, so everyone gets their head down, and then they'll they'll shoot the shell with a very high-powered phosphorus tracer and, sure. and blow it up. Yeah, and the, the, the siren you're talking about is one of those that's got like the like the mechanical wind-up handle, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean yeah. It, it's it's got to be it's got to be loud enough to be heard over the noise of a battle, but it mm-hmm. also it can't be dependent on batteries because it's got to work all the time and it's yeah. got to be man portable. Yeah, I know exactly what so, you're talking yeah. about, Doc. Um, it would be um, a thing about the size of the hat box. Yeah, um, with um, a windy handle like a um, sausage machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a big trumpet, like an old-fashioned record player, on the front. Yeah, I think I think everybody can imagine exactly what you're talking about. Let, 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 <laughs> let's, finish, let's finish the track off, Doc. We've got about 46 <laughs> seconds to go, and I think it's worth playing this in its entirety just to hear the the, the, the way that it kind of crescendos in intensity. In fact, I'm going to yeah. run it back about 15 seconds to the start of the um, the spoken word. But here we go. <laughs> So there we go. That was track five from South of Heaven. Of course, mandatory suicide. Go on there, Doc. Tell me what you think. I think I know already. Oh, it's a blinder. Yeah, um, I mean, it was, um, you're dead right. It was an easy sell to me. Mm. Um, it's the kind of Slayer I like the best. Um, off an album which 
increasingly I'm realizing a little mistakenly, um, but I've always associated with this pace and this style. Um, I'm now correcting myself and I'm beginning to think probably I should be thinking about the next album. Oh, yes. Yeah, this. very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case, in, in my imagination, they, they've, they've always been companion pieces anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's got... It doesn't have any stellar performances in the way that, say, Rain and Blood um, has stellar performances just in terms of how the hell can people play that fast? Yeah. The solo is complicated and more than I could do. But once again, it doesn't really have you going, oh man, how could anyone, like how, how could a, a human being of flesh and blood play that solo? Sure. It doesn't sound superhuman. No. Um, I would put it down to what you get when you make correct decisions about the composition and the writing of a song. Mm. Go on, Doc. Ex- expound. Um, well, simply that, it's, you can't afford, you can't make a whole album where not everything, where, where everything is not ambitious. Mm-hmm. But some, sometimes it's okay to not be ambitious and just say, here's a bunch of stuff that we know we can pull off, probably better than anybody else can pull it off. Mm-hmm. Um, a mid to slow pace, a mem- uh, 3M. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call this the M3. Mm-hmm. Um, the memorable morbid melody. Oh, great. I like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. The triple um, M. I like it. Yeah. Triple M. That's even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's got the triple M. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets their little moment to shine. Um, Dave doesn't get to exercise himself as much as usual, but he does get that absolutely sterling moment with the fill. Oh, great. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. For me, that's the moment of the track, to be honest. Um, yeah, it's 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 got um, it's got some fantastic Hanneman. Um, I'm going to keep a little shrine in my heart that at least the spirit of Ker- of, of, of Kerry King had something to do with that solo. <laughs> um, um, I mean, I, I, I've got nothing really to add, Doc. I, 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 I think it's absolutely exceptional. It's one of Slayer's, you know, finest moments. It's yeah, it, Doc. It, it just I'm, I'm just going to keep gushing. It's great. It's bloody bloody. Great. Shall we get into the lyrics? Yeah. Welcome to part three of the show. Here, we're just going to go through the lyrics and talk about them. So here's the first verse. Murder at your every footstep, a child's toy, sudden death. Sniper blazes you through your knees, falling down, can you feel the heat? Burn. All right, Doc, what, what, what they're they blithering on about? Um, so this might be a question to defer to a bit later in the song. Um, <clears throat> the best jokes are the ones that you can tell all the time and then never get old. Mm. Um, I'm about to tell the one about... Um, the terrorizer review of Bolt Thrower's fifth album, um, which began in a staggering display of originality. Bolt Thrower have written a concept album about war. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, uh-huh. um, <laughs> I think we know. What, I think we know what this song is about. I think we do. Um, which conflict? I'm, I'm, to me, it has to be um, a conflict set in an urban environment. Yeah. Um, 
So um, there's a line later. There's a line later on that I'm going to bring up. I'm going to bring up later to challenge your assertion on that. But okay. Um, in the context of this verse, yes. Yeah, you know, I think this. I think this is an urban. It's like an urban warfare environment. Um, so, I'm, so I'm discounting. I'm discounting Vietnam and Korea. I'm kind of discounting the Second World War as well. I, I think this is a more a more modern war i'm thinking maybe one that that, that that america isn't even involved in i mean could it be like the iran iraq war for example um this is very interesting i went through the exact same list that you did yeah um, the korean war was not notably urban mm -hmm. um, it was mostly rural yeah um the vietnam war i will i will hang i will hang fire see what i did there oh, i'll good. hang fire on for a second <laughs> mm -hmm. uh because I need to ask you what year Full Metal Jacket came out. Mm. Um, the Iran-Iraq war was also, um, and this is something people forget nowadays, um, the quick history lesson I liked. Mm. The Iran-Iraq war was the last proper war, um, the, the last proper war between nations in the world ever. Um, very Comparatively few civilian casualties, um, mostly professional soldier versus professional soldier. Uh -huh. um, and a lot of pitch battles of kind of equal strength, sure. which is one of the reasons it ended so indecisively. In, in answer to your question about Full Metal Jacket, Doc, I've, I've, I've done a, a quick Google, 1987, so it is contemporaneous with the writing of this album. Yeah, so and it's, it's interesting to me because the, these first two verses um, are pretty much a, a narration of the last 20 minutes of Full Metal Jacket, which is, mm. if you remember, when um, our friends go into, it's um, it's the day after, it's, 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 it's the week after the Tet Offensive and our friends go into uh, Hue City. And, and, it, and, and in fact, that, that's the sequence that is meant to be kind of a, 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 a almost like an urban Viet, Vietnam setting, but he's actually filmed in the Isle of Dogs in London, isn't it? That's the bit you're talking about. Um, Yes, um, I, um, I actually think it's Essex. I actually ah. think it's, it's, I actually think it's Beckton Power Station, um, mm -hmm. Essex. Okay. Um, also the location for the Cement Garden, conceivably mm -hmm. the most depressing film ever made. Mm. Um, and it was in the process of being demolished. And I, I, I love the story. Um, it was in the process of being demolished and Stanley Kubrick, um, by all accounts, asked, "Well, do you mind if we use ammunition and the construct the, the, um, the de uh, live ammunition? Um, do you mind if we give these actors and non-professional soldiers live ammunition and let them shoot the place up?" And the, constru uh, and, and the demolition company said, "No, we don't mind. <laughs> you, you're doing us a favour. Yeah, you're yeah. doing our job for um, us. <laughs> that's funny. And, um, that's that's actually real demolition of actual mm. concrete buildings, and that's sure. that's actual people firing off real guns. Um, you can see there." Mm. So that's that's what made me disagree with you for a second. However, um, there's another point a bit later on where I'll, I'll even disagree with you and myself about it being urban. Mm. The, um, I'm also going to reject the the, the Iran-Iraq war because that um, nowadays we're very very used to this idea that nowadays war is, um, and I believe the polite expression for it is asymmetric. Mm -hmm. Um, which is it's typically a professional army versus urban guerrillas. Yeah, I mean asymmetric is is a euphemism for kind of um, kind of unbalanced, isn't it, and almost like unfair in a way. Um, 
It kind of would be, except um, as we know, if you've been watching the news this week, um, it's the outnumbered, outgunned, technologically disadvantaged gorillas who end up winning all yeah. the fucking time. Yeah, yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah. You're right. Um, so I think it's asymmetric um, in terms of um, the two sides having radically different doctrine and equipment, mm-hmm. um, effectively fighting in two completely different ways. Yeah, it, 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 you know, it, it, it's it's Manchester City playing Stoke City, isn't it? Or beautiful football against a bunch of fucking clubbers, basically. Um, yeah, but um, if the rules, if um, if the if the referee was blind and didn't notice that the members of Stoke City um, were all carrying straight razors down their socks, yeah, and, they're tooled up. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, I like it. And why garrots? Yeah, I think Tony Poulis would have gone for that if it, if it had been allowed. To be honest, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think Stanley Matthews would as well. Yeah, and, you're and, probably right. And that was back in the day. Yeah. Um, apparently, um, Stanley Matthews was in the habit of because um, he was a stylish fellow, and he was in the habit of taking out his comb and brushing his hair, and it was apparently a steel comb with a sharp edge machined on the side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, um, odd little bastards in them days. Yeah. <clears throat> should, so, should, we get on, should we get on to the to the second verse? Because I think I think the second verse is just a continuation. Ambushed by the spray of lead, count the bullet holes in your head. Offspring sent out to cry. Living mandatory suicide. The line I want to co- um, a child's toy. So, what, what, what the hell is that? What, what does that, that even mean? I'll just put a big question mark next to it. I, I, I don't understand what that means. A child's toy, sudden death. Um, I mean, I think it's just they're just being a bit poetic, aren't they? This is the the urban. It's, I think I think this line is clearly establishing the urban setting. So you've got a, like a demolished house that a family obviously used to live in, and the and you know and, and there is there lying amongst the rubble, maybe amongst the bodies and the blood, you know, hauntingly, you know, there's a teddy bear or a doll, something yeah. like that. So um, I need to go and look this up. There was a, um, I believe, a World War Two combat photographer um, who followed the Fourth Armoured. Um, through the the invasion of Germany, mm. um, and um, it was later discovered that um, he would um, he would carry um, a doll with him so he could place it poignantly in ruins and photograph it. Oh yes, yeah. what what a scumbag man! Yeah, how about that? Um, there's a couple of other things, um, and th- there's there's sort of black propaganda. Um, I believe during. Um, I was going to say the the Arab-Israeli war, but um, a lot after that, um, when Palestinians began causing trouble in Israel, there was black propaganda um, spread against the Arabs that they would send um, children with small bombs concealed inside toys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's this sort of notional idea, um, and um, this is getting back to something we still haven't completely decided about whether or not this is the Vietnam or the Vietnam conflict we're talking about. I'm discounting it totally. You know, in my opinion, this is not Vietnam. Right. Um, 
so I'm cognizant of the fact that in modern irregular wars in Africa, um, there has been adopted a shortened, um, I believe, Pakistani-manufactured Chinese variant of the AK-47, mm. um, which is considered especially um, especially suitable for seven-year-olds. Ah, lovely. Um, yeah, to, it, it's 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 a it's a little short one. Yeah. Um, with a 15-round magazine, so you can you, you can sort of keep the weight down, mm. um, and you can probably start training on one of those at, 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 at age seven. Sure. Mm-hmm. How, um, how horrific, Doc. Yeah, um, that um, I think that one first sort of came up in the um, the diamonds conflict in um, Sierra Leone mm. in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm I'm conscious of that as the idea of a, a, a child's toy. I'm also sort of conf- uh, interested in this idea that um, people who wish to observe the tragedy of youth have always observed the extreme youth. Sorry, people who wish to observe the tragedy of war have always observed the extreme youth of the participants. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, the people that you can get, you can persuade to go out and get themselves killed on behalf of your glorious nation um, are not terribly old. And I'm curious as to whether it's... So I mean, there's, there's four distinct references. There's, 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 there's four distinct meanings I can come up with for, for, for this little phrase. Um, and I think we've even outdone ourselves. I think we've spoken for 10 minutes about two words in a Slayer song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on, because I, I don't think we're quite going, going to agree as to, you know, the, the, the conflict or even the, the actual environmental setting. That's okay, Doc. That, that's why we do this, isn't it, for differences, differences of, of, of opinion. I'm kind of leaning on you at the moment. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've got so many conflicting ideas. I've got so, um, I'm certainly not saying that I am completely convinced it is a reference to the Vietnam mm. conflict uh, or any other conflict. In a piece of prescience, um, apart from the fact that the album is clearly, clearly much too old, I would say it describes the Iraq conflict far more sure. than anything else. Absolutely. I mean, exactly. I think if, if you know, if, if this album were, were six years later, five or six years later, yeah, I would totally agree. But of, of course it is not. So it could be, can it? Um, next verse, Doc. Holes burn deep in your chest, raked by machine gun fire, screaming soul sent out to die, living mandatory suicide. And then, of course, the repetition of the chorus, which is just the word suicide, said four times. Um, I mean, pretty clear here, isn't it? It's, you know, a description of somebody being shot, um, horrifically shot by many, many bullets from a, from, a, from a machine gun. I think we've got that little nod there to, to the Slayer cosmology, the reference to I the I think Slayer. so, too. Yeah. yeah it's, it's nice, isn't it nice to see, actually? That really, that really, put, that really put me up when I, when I read that earlier. And, and every- but then there's then the last line is the, the message of the song, isn't it, of course, living mandatory suicide. Yeah. So every time we get one of these little references to the, 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 the Slayer cosmology, um, it perks me up a little bit that maybe we're not completely barking the wrong tree in seeing this as frequently as because it it gets referenced too frequently and and, and too consistently to, to to just be a coincidence, doesn't it? Well, I, th- I think you know, it, 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 you know, if something walks like a duck and, and quacks like a duck, it's a duck, isn't it? Basically, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 it's beyond coincidence by this point. 
We're, we're not crackers. Now, let's deconstruct this line, living mandatory suicide. Um, living and suicide are, 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 are stated contradictions. Mandatory, um, and mandatory suicide is also an inherent oxymoron. Well, I mean, and it's a deliberate oxymoron, isn't it? But, but, and it does give credence to your, to your notion that maybe it is Vietnam because it talk, I mean, that, surely that's, that's talking about conscription, isn't it? Mandatory suicide. That, you know, that, 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 that's a euphemism for conscription, surely. It could be. Um, it could also be talking about being pressed into the service of an insurgent movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Sure. Yeah. Uh, which, like a okay, guerrilla like faction of some kind. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's conscription by any other name. Yeah. Um, I mean, assuming it is a guerrilla war, we're to, uh, assuming it is an irregular or asymmetric war we're talking about here, and we haven't even begun to discuss um, who's, who's, whose head we're in. Are we in somebody's head? Or is this just like a, a, an impartial narrator? I, I, I don't see... Any, I don't see any agency in the person giving us the description here. No, sorry, bad choice of words. On um, it's we're not sure yet which side we're talking about. No, that's true. Okay, uh, I mean uh, the idea of someone being notionally conscripted by a nation state to fight in a professional army versus mm-hmm. the concept of someone being pressed into service by a local guerrilla faction. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Both are equally valid interpretations of that line, but they have radically different meanings. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, you, you you kind of touched on the, the current affairs at the moment, the situation in, in Afghanistan as the, the Taliban appear to be gaining ground, gaining ground day by day. Surely, you know, huge swathes of, of, of the people fighting for the Taliban are not necessarily doing it by choice, are they? They're... they're, they're, they're this is conscription by another name, isn't it? I'm not sure. I mean, if you if you want a reflection of the way that the Slayer cosmology impinges on the real world, mm. um, it looks to me like um, Afghanistan in 2021 is going the way of Vietnam in 1976 at the moment, mm. which is that the um, now that the vastly funded, superior and well-equipped occupiers have pulled out um, and the um, the defenders of democracy um, that they have trained and equipped and left behind um, are, for whatever reason, um, really not putting up much of a fight now, are they? Mm, no, no, you're quite right. Yeah. Um, yeah. After, mm-hmm. after the termination of Operation Frequent Wind in 1975, um, the North Vietnamese claimed southern Vietnamese territory at approximately slow marching pace. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, they, they, re, they, they reclaimed territory about as fast as you could walk through the jungle, which means they didn't encounter a great deal of resistance. Yes, yes, I understand. Um, uh, my ex-partner's parents fled Saigon approximately three days before... Um, the the, the, the the communists retook it um, tremendously um, the, the tremendously heart-wrenching stories that they have to tell about the whole situation um, should we move on to to the spoken word part doc and I've, here's a novelty let's do the whole lot we've got about 11 or 12 lines here but should we do four lines each 
What do you reckon? Let's do four lines each. That sounds nice, doesn't it? I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off. Dying, screaming in pain, begging, pleading, bullets drop like rain, minds explode, pain shears through your brain, radical amputation, this is insane. Fly swatter stakes drive through your chest, spikes impale as you're forced off the crest, soldier of misfortune hunted with bated breath, a vile smell like tasting death. Dead bodies dying and wounded litter the streets, shattered glass, bits of clothing, and human deceit. Finish it off for us, Doc. Dying in terror. Blood's cheap. It's everywhere. Mandatory suicide. Massacre on the front line. Yeah, and then, of course, Tom delivers a, a heart-wrenching scream of anguish at the end of that. There really is. I, I, th I think it's Tom's finest scream, actually. And no, I haven't forgotten the beginning of Angel of Death. Um, I, think this one, I think this one rivals it. We've got a couple of things to try and decide on. Um, as we go through the, these, um, can we get any kind of idea as to what conflict this is describing? Um, I mean, the first interesting line is that line is soldier of misfortune for me. You know, that, that, that's because a soldier of fortune, you know, the, the, if I think of a, a soldier of fortune again, it, it, these are mercenaries, aren't they? In 1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. These are soldiers that work for private companies paid to go and act almost like as, as a proxy for a, you know, for, for a state agency. Am I about right, Doc? Um, you're 90% right. Yeah. Um, many mercenaries are... Um, so this, this, this is a very 70s thing. There are a lot of newly independent countries who, fearful for their own security... And, dist and, and, and actively distrustful of their own people um, would hire foreign mercenaries to effectively form a regular army. Mm. When the British Empire went out of business and national service finished in the United Kingdom, um, a lot of soldiers suddenly found themselves unemployed and a lot of them took very good and very highly paid jobs all over Africa and in the Middle East. Sure. Um, when... Rhodesia went, for here's an example, when Rhodesia went independent um, uh, from the UK um, in the early 1970s, so Rhodesia, they hired a lot. Sorry, just, just for the listen, Rhodesia is now called Zimbabwe, correct? 
um, it was called, uh, it was Rhodesia when it was part of the British Empire, then it became, it stayed Rhodesia when it declared its independence, but with white rule. Mm-hmm. Um, it became Zimbabwe Rhodesia during the largely political and sometimes violent conflict. Um, and when minority white rule became untenable, um, and effectively Robert Mugabe's um, Zanla organization took over, then it became Zimbabwe. Sure, okay. Uh-huh. Um, and it shared Matabili land and I think Nasa land somewhere along the way, and it ceded some territory to what's now Mozambique. Yeah, great, great so, history lesson there, Doc, and you've earned your fee with, with that little uh, lesson alone. Good for you, man. African conflicts are complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the effectively white minority forces um, who wished to remain, who, who wished to remain in control of Rhodesia and be independent from the United Kingdom, hired a great many Australian um, and American mercenaries who had recently demobilised from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, um, a soldier of misfortune or a soldier of fortune or, or a mercenary would be someone who is paid to be in the service of a nation state, which is not their own. Mm-hmm. Um, the most organized and the most visible example of um, this kind of organization is the French Foreign Legion. Yes, of course. Yeah, that, that, that was exactly the organization that was, the, that was in my bonds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, effectively a, a proxy force for the French colonial government that by definition has got no French people in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they can maintain plausible deniability at all times. Mm-hmm. Wasn't us, no French mm-hmm. people involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what, does it, what does this line mean, Doc? Fly swatter stakes. What, what on earth does that mean? What, what, what is a fly swatter stake? What does that mean? Um, well, I'm not saying that this is definitively that this means what this song is about. Um, it's a weapon that's associated with the jungle conflicts of the 1940s, oh. 50s, 60s, and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, is so it yeah, um, I'm sure you've seen at least one Rambo. I, I, I'm, I'm sure Rambo makes one in at least one film. <laughs> you know what a fly swatter looks like? So it, it's, it's, a square, it's a square trellis on the end yeah. of a long handle. Sure. So imagine one of those made out of bamboo lashed together yeah. on a long pole with it's spikes like attached to it. It's like a waffle. Sorry? It's like a waffle, isn't it, basically? Yeah. 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 Um, so you make one of these out of bamboo, you lash it to a, a, a thick springy piece of bamboo, mm. you bend it backwards and anchor it into the ground so that when, when someone trips a tripwire, it pops up out of the ground like a giant fly swatter. And, and, yeah, and that does lend credence, doesn't it, to the, to the notion that it, that, of Vietnam. But then later, you know, towards the end, you know, dead bodies dying and wounded, litter the streets, shattered glass bits of clothing. And I mean, that, that, that's clearly an, an urban environment. That is not jungle warfare. It's not jungle wolf. I, I mean, I, um, I'm not asserting anything. I'm not disagreeing no. with. You. Um, no. I'm saying it, it could, um, it could refer, um, it could refer to the events around the Tet Offensive. Mm. Um, so, and, and of course, uh, there are cities in Vietnam, and I'm sure there were conflicts there. You know. Yeah. So, I, I, if if we're ta- if we are talking about the Vietnam conflict, um, we're talking about the um, the the Battle of Hue, mm-hmm. um, which was the the most. It's very very close to the DMZ, as you know, the the informal border between the Republic of Vietnam and the People's Republic of Vietnam. Yeah, which mm-hmm. existed at the time. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely place. I've, I've been to Hue. It's an absolutely charming little 
little, kind of small city, I would say. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it was, um, I think it's the, the ancient imperial capital. Mm. Um, and was it the French colonial capital for a while? Oh, I don't know for sure, but it, it, it wouldn't surprise me because certainly the older residents of Huay still speak French. Yeah. Um, if I've got this right, um, Huay was the original French colonial capital and they they constructed Saigon, if not from scratch, then they, they greatly reconstructed Saigon um, as um, effectively a miniature copy of the left bank of Paris. Mm. Oh, very interesting. Um, yeah. Which is um, why apparently, um, if you know if, if, if you know your way around Paris, then you know your way around Saigon automatically. Oh, how about that? Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Mm. Mm, like a carbon copy. Um, this isn't unusual, particularly in Asia, and it might even represent um, a bit of sensitivity. Um, Nara, which is the ancient imperial capital of Japan, um, is a street-for-street -street copy of Hunan in China. Mm. Um, there is, um, the, 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 there's a small town in, 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 in the mountainous region of Vietnam called Dalat. And in Dalat, they have a kind of roughly, I would say, half-scale version of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there, there is still a clear French influence in Vietnam. Um, and, and often you'll see, I, I remember seeing uh, a sign that said Restaurant de Chien. Uh, no, Restaurant, <laughs> Restaurant Vion de Chien. So dog meat restaurant. <laughs> dog meat true. restaurant. Absolutely, dog meat restaurant is true. Uh, Fantastic. Come on, Doc, we've got, we got about 10 minutes before our hard out. Anything more to say about the lyrics? What do we think? This last half line here is the closest I think the song gets to making me think it's explicitly about the Vietnam conflict. Mm -hmm. First off the crest, um, I think that's a reference to the small but very important conflict that people will now often refer to as Hamburger Hill. Mm -hmm. And it was a, an extremely fierce battle fought for the crest of a hill. Which and again, was. that reference to the spikes, these are like the, you know, the, 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 the traps that were set by those kind of group by the by the VC or like the, the, the guerrilla force effectively. Yeah. We're, we're getting some um I think incidental evidence um or some circumstantial evidence here that it it, it, it is a jungle conflict of some description yeah. um with an urban component. Sure. Yeah. I, 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 to be honest, Doc, you, you, the, 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 this spoken word section has got you, you it's got me convinced. I've, I've come around to your way of thinking Doc. I think it is Vietnam. Um it's interesting though, isn't it? Because um, we know when this song was made. Um, if this song had been made 10 years later, I would have sworn blind it was about the Balkans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Um, terrible. If it had been made 20 years later, I would have sworn blind it was about Iraq. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it, 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 it's almost like uh, we keep making the same mistakes and don't, and don't learn from history, isn't it, Doc? Yeah, um, and there's obviously a lot in the Slayer cosmology about that. Mm. There is a possibility that I have, I have thought about, but I haven't mentioned because I'm so blasted ignorant about it. I haven't even, and considering that we've considered one of the concepts about this album from the first track, we haven't even thought about any of the small-scale US-backed conflicts in South and Central America. Yeah, like Nicaragua, for example. Um, yeah, and all of the nasty, dirty wars that the CIA funded or sent mercenaries into. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, all of these are possibilities, Doc. Anything more to say, Doc? I, I, I'm, I'm kind of done, to be honest. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's um, 
not not a great deal of existential con uh, content to this. We haven't been able to go philosophically into it. No. Um, but in terms of narrative devices, um, it's got a lot to offer. Mm -hmm. um, as the final bit of evidence that, no, it's not an invisible dirty war in South America. Uh, we've got this very authoritarian, journalistic, um, narratorial voice mm -hmm. talking about it during the, during, during the spoken word section. That's why I think it's 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 an overground conflict. It's it's not something that's happening. Um, I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying Tom's doing a Walter Cronkite impersonation any more than I'm saying he's doing a Kate Adie impersonation. But it's mm -hmm. it's something that's being reported on. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's me, Dan. Yep. I think we tend to agree. Let's move on. Welcome to the last part of the show. Here we're just going to give you our final thoughts and summations, but as usual, some details. Writing credits, music, uh, Jeff Hanneman and Kerry King. Lyrics by Tom Araya alone. Um, according to Setlist, this track was played 1,670 times, putting it in <laughs> position overall. Have had doc, it's number five on their kind of most played tracks. Um, I, I, knew, I knew they played this a lot, but... I must admit that surprised me. Um, first played a place called Agora in Cleveland on the 4th of August, 1988. Four days, by the way, before the other tracks we've heard on this album, curiously. So I don't know what that's about. Any any thoughts there, Doc? Maybe it was just ready earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's possible, isn't it? That they just started, yeah, they, they, they practised it and felt it was it was ready for the road. It's, it's possible. Um, according, right. to, according to Loudwire, here we go. The title alone provides a disturbing image. Another sinful riff pushes mandatory suicide ahead, setting up Araya's powerful high notes to come. The South of Heaven piece is another composition that only Slayer could have created. That's how unique the character of mandatory suicide is. I mean, for once there, I think Loudwire are saying a lot of words and actually saying nothing at all. Yeah, um, what they're saying is, we liked it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Good song. That's it, yeah. <clears throat> Final thoughts, Doc, before we, before we give our scores. Um, it's a really, it, it, it's a great track. Yes. Um, uh, thinking back on it, it had such an impression on me that it made me think that much more of this album was like this. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I've already said that like when, when I had a 10-year break from this album, not because I disliked it, I just happened to have a 10-year break from this album. Whenever a bit of it would swim into my consciousness, it was always the spoken word bit from this song. Yeah, yeah. And, and I suppose that's kind of coloured your impression of the whole album, hasn't it? It's made you think that's, that right. that's what the whole album sounds like. Um, I'm afraid it might also have made me think that the album is a bit better than it actually yeah. is. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, the, the, this is just absolutely rock solid. I think it's Slayer at the top of their game. I like the fact that, they, you know, given the subject matter, they, they kind of took their foot off the gas in terms of speed, you know, because it is quite, a, it, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a deep subject. It's an important subject. Uh, it's a serious subject. And, you know, by slowing down, it... it it, it allowed for, it kind of in a crazy way, it kind of allowed for more words to be said by Tom and, you know, kind of allowed it to be a bit, a bit more reflective. It's got that <clears throat> in, impartial, impassive tone to it, um, which, which carries because of the, the, like the, the nature of the slower pace. I think if this was just like a full-on thrash attack, it would kind of, it would undercut the seriousness of, of the message of the track in a way, if, if that makes sense. Um, 
Yeah, it's a Stone Cold classic, Doc. Give, give, give us your swords. Come on. We're all waiting. Nine liquescent swords, mate. Nine. Nine liquescent swords for the good doctor. And you know what? Snap. I'm going to match you. It's nine for Mo as well. Yeah, totally agree. It's not quite, you know, not quite for me at the level of the first three tracks on the album, but still very, very, very good. Bordering on a masterpiece. Brilliant. Doc, it's been a pleasure. Um, don't forget, guys, you can contact us on Twitter at Vercast or on email at SlatanicVercast at gmail.com. And the perverts can join us on Facebook at Vercast <laughs> as well if they want to. Join us next time when we'll be talking about the sixth track from South of Heaven, which is, of course, Ghosts of War. I look forward to it, Doc, and I hope I'll see you then. Take care. See you later. <laughs>